0: I, every once in a while when we sing a Charles, Charles Wesley hymn, which we sang at the beginning of the service today, I wonder how in the world he found time to just live his life. Because he preached everywhere, he rode all over the country, and he wrote like a hundred and some hymns on top of it. Captured pretty well, actually, uh, in that hymn, uh, the gospel reading uh, for today, although, um, you know, we do spend a lot of time thinking about that as we enter the season of Advent. A lot of the, the focus is on the second coming of Christ. Uh, and we, we give time to the second coming before we get to the first coming of Christ when we celebrate Easter. So it's a little, it's a little disorienting for people who have never been through it in, a, in an historical church before because you do sing a lot of really heavy music during advent because it's a penitential season and you're 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 preparing yourself for the coming again of the lord and then when you get to christmas that's when you sing the all of the christmas hymns and the christmas carols and things like that so stick with us we will get to them uh at some point last week our small group gathered uh to share an evening meal it was uh both beautiful and joyful experience around the table. Part of the discussion for us that night was just a question I lobbed out there, which actually I got from this guy, uh, or maybe it came from Rebecca. I'm not sure. But what was your favorite toy as a child, and what might that tell us about you? It was. It was actually really illuminating. I mean, we're with people that are basically our age group, which is really young, but (laughs) we've still lived a lot of life. Um, There were so many straight lines from favorite toy as a child to like vocation and interest, even today. My favorite toy, and I've shared this with a little bit of embarrassment, but I wasn't gonna lie to people, by far was a cowboy outfit consisting of a suede leather vest and chaps. Now, I dare you to try not to think about me in chaps. Don't do it. Um, I was way too small for a a 10-gallon hat, so mine was about a -a 2.5-gallon hat and two cap guns that looked like pearl handled revolvers and they had the red caps that came on a roll. Do you guys remember these? I wore that outfit nearly everywhere until it was just unwearable. I couldn't even like get my arms into the vest by the time I gave it up. A little, a little time later, my best friend Peter owned an American quarter horse named JR which we spent a lot of time over several years grooming and feeding and riding. Today, I still watch nearly every cowboy show that I can. I own a hugely overpriced wool cowboy vest from Filson, which is the J. Crew of cowboys. And I'm currently saving to buy the equipment required for cowboy action shooting, which may seem silly to some, if not most of you. I mean, admittedly, I can be a little bit quirky, but in a larger sense, I think what this might say about me is that I am and I have always been exhilarated by adventure. From surfing to motocross racing to snowboarding to church planting to flying airplanes for fun You notice I didn't say skydiving, because why would anyone jump out of a perfectly good airplane? I'm not dumb. I truly, truly enjoy adventure. And fortunately, I have a wife that enjoys it, too. Especially those adventures that, like nearly all good adventures, require risking some things. And risking is a thing in this week's Gospel reading. This event in the temple courtyard takes place during Holy Week, the days between Jesus' triumphal entry into the city on what's called Palm Sunday and Jesus' resurrection the following Sunday morning. And the sense of foreboding around these stories now has become kind of palpable. One of the things we have to always be careful about as we read the Gospels is to hold in tension the fact that Jesus was talking first to a people in a particular time and place. In this case, first century Jews in the city of Jerusalem. You know, Patrick, would you just make sure that the air conditioning is is not on? I'm wearing like 17 layers and I'm getting cold. Jesus is prophesying directly about the Roman sacking of the city and the destruction of the temple, something we know as an historical fact that took place 35 or so years after this in the year 70. When the disciples asked him how they could know when these events would take place, Jesus gives them some signs to look for. But the main thing he wants them to know is that there will be a time of waiting in which they'll have to endure incredibly perilous and painful times. The temple, the most beautiful and dominating building one could imagine in that time and place, adorned and decorated by the craft and love of hundreds of years, and occupying the central place in the imagination of the nation, the temple itself will be torn down an idea that was simply unthinkable to them. Jesus knows that during these distressful times, his followers will be singled out as criminals and made pariahs. Jesus was, after all, in the religious hierarchy's view, the man who was leading Israel in exactly the wrong direction, deflecting people from keeping the law with scandalous ideas about God's kingdom and of grace and peace for everyone. Jesus tells of days when people will be on trial for their lives because of their allegiance to him. And the story of the first generations of Christians perfectly bears out these prophecies. And this passage, so vital, and precise in its reference to that first generation, also has something to say to you and me today. Christians have been and will be mercilessly persecuted for their faith. And I'm not talking about things like Starbucks' war on Christianity a while back by removing the words Merry Christmas from their holiday cups. Do you guys remember that uproar? talking about real and sustained persecution, something that's sadly but not surprisingly common in a lot of the world today and may be common to us in the not-too-distant future. We don't know what the future holds for us, but that's certainly an historical possibility. So far this month, in Ethiopia, two pastors were publicly beheaded as violence against Christians has flared. In Iran, dozens of house church pastors were arrested and imprisoned. Three Indian believers were arrested and are facing murder charges after praying for a very sick friend who later died. Think about the logic of that. It, it works in an animistic culture. And in Cameroon, a Bible translator ironically striving to give people the gift of a written language for the first time in their history, was murdered for the crime of proselytizing. And these are just four of literally thousands of similar stories from this month. It makes Jesus' words come starkly and solemnly to life In our time, clearly a call to follow Jesus is a call to risking some things. And so I'd like to talk about risking and the causes of God today. I'm defining risk as any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. And why is there such a thing as risk? Well, the answer is super straightforward. Ignorance. If there were no ignorance, there would be no risk. Risk is a reality because we literally never know how things are going to turn out. This is one of the reasons why I don't like and try not to use the word disappoint. First of all, I think disappointment is too heavy of a load for the human soul to bear. If our children feel like we're disappointed in them, that is onerous. But think about the etymology of this word, dis and appoint. If you're disappointed, it means you had something appointed, and that person didn't do it. Now, who is the only being in the universe that actually has the right and ability to appoint? God. And he's never disappointed. He's never, ever um, taken Uh, this kind of risk, because he knows the outcome of all his choices before they happen. Omniscience, by definition, precludes the possibility of risk. But not so with us. There is a God and we are not him we are ignorant. We don't know anything that will happen tomorrow. God doesn't tell us what he intends to do in the next moment or, or five years from now. Jesus reminds this repeatedly. He reminds us of this repeatedly in the Gospels. Evidently, God intends for us to live and act in some level of ignorance and in some uncertainty about the outcome of our actions. The Holy Spirit says to us, for example, in James 4, 13-15, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears a little time and then vanishes instead you ought to say if the lord wills we will live and do this or that and so if you i have an appointment with you and you text me and ask me if i'm still coming and i reply lord willing i'm not being smart i'm hopefully being biblical I still intend to be there. We don't know about tomorrow, and therefore risk is woven right into the fabric of our lives. We can't avoid it even if we want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is the air we breathe. Every plan for tomorrow can be amended or even shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or fly airplanes. My desire here at least in part, is to bring to our consciousness, if only for a a, a time, the myth of safety and to help us break the enchantment of security because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction we turn is fraught with unknowns and things beyond our control. And I'm sorry if this makes some of you anxious. But the misfortune is that under the deceptive spell of security, we're often frightened to take risks for the causes of God because we think it may jeopardize a security that, in fact, does not exist and never has. I want to be really clear, though. Not every risk for the causes of God is necessarily a good risk. Jesus refused to jump off the pinnacle of the temple just refused. And St. Paul once snuck out of Damascus, hidden in a basket to escape the governor. So risk does require some wisdom and discernment, but I believe it's right and necessary for us to risk for the causes of God. When the battle of the Lord is at hand, it's right for a man to rise up with a strategy, put into practice, and then put it into practice, and then say with Joab in 2 Samuel 10:12, we've done all that we can. May the Lord now do what seems good to him. When the good of God's people is at stake and one life could save many, it's right for a woman to take the challenge and say with Esther in Esther 4:16, though it's against the law. I will go to the king, and if I die, I die. And when the world is without the gospel, and even hostile to it, it's right for one to say with St. Paul in Acts 10, twenty twenty four, I don't account my life of any value or any as precious to myself. If only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Numbers 13 and 14 tells a story of what happens, what happened when the people of God feared, let fear overtake them and refused to risk for the causes of God. Caleb and Joshua said the promised land of Canaan was beautiful and rich and right there. It would take effort, but they could conquer it because God was with them. But the people preferred the stupid mirage of Egyptian security. And so they wandered aimlessly in the desert for 40 years. Makes me wonder how many of us have been kind of condemned to wander in monotonous circles through long periods of our lives. Because we've refused to risk for the causes of God. I'm particularly drawn to Jesus' words in Luke 21:16: "You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death." The key word here is some. Some of you will be put to death. What this word does is put the earthly life of the disciples in great uncertainty. Not all will die for the causes of God, but then not all will live either. Some will die and some will live. That's what I mean by risk. It's the will of God that we be uncertain about how this life on earth will turn out for us. And therefore, it's in his will that we take risks for his causes. God may never call you and me to the heroic life or death kinds of risks prevalent in parts of the world today and throughout history. But he does call all, all of us His followers to risk. So what are the kinds of risks we should be taking? I'm sure there are more, but at least three kinds or categories of risks the scriptures urge us to come to mind for me. First, the Bible urges us to take risks in our relationships when rightness and restoration is at stake. Particularly two kinds of things. One is the risk of admitting that you have a problem and seeking help to solve it. The other is the risk of telling someone else they have a problem and seeking to help them. Both of these are taught in scripture. Confession, on the one hand, and correction, on the other. Of the two, correction, particularly in our toxic, shame, saturated world, is way more nuanced and potentially harmful, and requires intentional intentionally building a high level of joy and and strong attachments in a community and a strong group identity this is something we're spending hours discussing and eventually we'll be putting into practice within our small groups this term now because of that i'll only focus on the first one today namely confession proverbs 28:13 says he who conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them Will obtain mercy and James five sixteen says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This blows my mind that you may be healed. But it is risky. It's much, much safer in the near term at least, to keep quiet about those things, those, those habits you don't want anyone to know about. And I don't mean to say that every battle of the soul should be posted on social media, but on the other hand, James gets at something crucial when he says, confess your sins to each other that you may be healed, because there's a kind of privacy that paralyzes us, and there's a kind of concealing that chokes us. Some of you have taken significant risks in this area of your relationships and are much better for it today. Others of you are hurting yourselves and the causes of God by keeping something secret that someone you trust should know about. Some grudge, some failure, some habit, some entangling sin, some deep regret. Take a risk. Find a confessor. Now, Advent, the season that we're heading into, you'll notice that um, the, the color uh, Sunday after next will be white because that is Christ the King. And then we'll be wearing purple for the next four weeks after that. That's because, because Advent is a penitential season. It's a perfect time for you to seek that guy right there or me out and confess to us. We, we do this. This is what we, this is what we do. And we have a very good service, a very good liturgy for, for absolution, for getting us back into right relationship. I would, I would love, I and mean, I will have several people during this time of year that, that do that. And the Anglican communion confession is not required, but it is remarkable. So, a second category of risk the scriptures call us to involves our money, not with a view to getting rich, but with a view to maximizing our resources for the causes of God. How many arms just crossed in the room when I said money? Um, Here we go again. A second category, well, that's the second category of risk. Immediately before today's reading, um, same chapter, verses 1 through 4, Luke tells this story. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. A way to paraphrase this story would be the rich took no risk for the causes of God with their money, but the widow sure did. Why did did Jesus point this out? Why was Luke inspired to record it? I think the reason is straightforward. Jesus wants his people to take risks with their money for the causes of God. I was waiting for an amen there, but amen. yes, thank you. <laughs> when I go like this, <laughs> that's your signal. So Jesus tells another story in Luke 12, uh, verses 13 through 21, about a man who chooses security over risk for the causes of God. The man says, hey, man, actually he said soul, but I never, ever talked to myself that way. Uh, amen you you have ample goods laid up for many years take your ease eat drink and be merry why risk your security and comfort and ease by being sacrificially generous toward God he owns the cattle on a thousand hills surely he can take care of himself but God simply says to him verses 20 and 21 you fool this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. And then he says in verses 22, or 22 and 31, in the same chapter, stop being anxious about your life. And seek first the kingdom of God. And a few verses after that, in verse 33, he says, sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old and a treasure that doesn't fail. Repeatedly in the gospel, in the gospels, Jesus pushes his disciples to actively free themselves from excess money. I don't know if you're rich toward God, but I do know that for most of us, it's the will of Christ that we risk giving more than we do. The third kind of risk the scriptures urge us urges in the area of witnessing to the immense grace of God and the gospel confession time this is a particularly uncomfortable one for me for most of my life I've chalked it up to lacking the gift of evangelism but candidly it's mostly fear that people won't like me or they'll think I'm weird or that I remind them of an insensitive tone deaf nut job they know I also had some really genuinely bad and embarrassing experiences with this in my church and family of origin. It goes really deep. In our passage, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Unbelievably, Jesus says that Christians will get arrested so that they can witness to jailers and judges and governors and kings. We may really dislike God's strategy to sprinkle salt in these places, but he is infinitely wiser than we are, and it's clearly his will, according to 1 Peter 3.15, that we always be ready He prepared to make a defense with gentleness and respect to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that's in us and that we constantly be ready to witness to the grace and glory of Jesus, even though he goes on to say here in Luke, some of you, they will kill. If everything ever does go horribly wrong and you wind up in some place you hoped you'd never be and it seems like a total catastrophe, you can know at least one of God's purposes for having you there as he says in verse 13 this will be a time for you to bear witness we must take the risk of speaking out about the immense grace of God in the gospel we cannot wait until it feels safe Jesus doesn't always mean it to be safe he means for us to risk for the causes of God and the eternal good of other people so Big question. Does God promise success in all our risks for his causes? Nope. That's why it's called risk. There is absolutely no promise that every risk for the causes of God will succeed, at least not in the near term. John the Baptist risked calling Herod to task when he divorced his wife to take his brother's wife, Herodias, and he was beheaded for it. And he'd done right to risk his life for the causes of God. Paul was beaten and thrown in jail in Jerusalem, then extradited to Rome and executed there two years later, and he'd done right to risk his life for the causes of the gospel. And now, many, and how many prison cells and graves are there in the world today because of the multitude of women and men freed by the power of the Holy Spirit from the enchantment of security, who have risked their freedom, and their lives for the causes of God. So, choose to risk for the causes of God, and from a temporal perspective, good or bad things might happen. But choose not to risk, and nothing will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.